Well, good morning, everybody. I've been asked by the ushers if some of you who have room on your row can slide in some, because there are some uh, people in the back that would like to get some seats. They'd be very grateful for that. And uh, next week, you will definitely want to be back. We're going to allocate some time to bring you up to date on Mike's long-term successor and also on the, where are we with the worship director of, uh, excuse me, the uh, worship director, pastor of worship. I got that all backwards and confused, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And you know, we've gotten some really very good and reasonable questions from a number of you. You can continue to write us anytime you want with questions. So we're going to comment on those next week. And as you know, um, in, well, maybe you don't know this, in two weeks, two weeks, we're going to have a special guest speaker from, who comes from another area of the world. He's going to give us an update on what's been happening in that area of the world. And I can tell you, I, I know this brother, it's a fantastic what God is doing. So you're going to want to come here and, uh, and hear him in two weeks. As you know, Mike prepares messages in his sleep. And I prepare messages to put you to sleep. So if you've got any friends with insomnia, just give them some melatonin, melatonin, and then afford them this talk, and they'll be very grateful and often snoozing in no time. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, and if you're relatively new to RBC, the theme for our year is Thinking matters. That's the theme for the entire year. And if the transformation process is going to continue, that Jesus Christ wants to conform us into his image, then we are going to have to look at how we think and what we think about every aspect of life. And today and next week, we will consider how work matters. Work matters. You know, we will spend over 40% of our life at work, or thinking about work, or traveling to and from work. And that's a lot of time. Last year, I sup- or this particular spring, excuse me, I surpassed 50 years of working outside the home from my mom and dad, where I used to cut grass and, and uh, do chores, and they'd pay me a dime. <clears throat> okay, And so it's been 50 years uh, since I've done that. And I've had a really winding road. And I can tell you it gives me great empathy and compassion for all of you and the hard work that you do out in the marketplace and in raising children at home and all the challenges that you face. My work history is actually quite odd. It covers a very wide assortment and tasks. While married with four children, these experiences have spanned working for the largest corporation in the world, mid-sized and small businesses, brand new startups, and working for myself as a sole proprietor. And while working on my own, I did plenty of those micro-type dirty jobs. And then I would also do them at the other end of the spectrum. I would be doing training and consulting to C-level executives and managers. I've had the privilege of learning and studying nearly every aspect of ministerial work through two tours and 10 years as an associate pastor. The path has taken me into industries involving telecommunications, high-end retail, construction, mortgage banking, systems integration, software development and delivery, technical recruiting, raising investment capital, and working with an investment advisor after securing a license, 
and I've been involved in real estate, covering property management, flipping houses, consolidating land, subdividing land, and rezoning. And then I spent five years as president of a small biotechnology company, securing NIH grants and several patents. Many times, just like all of you, I've worked double shifts with no sleep. I've been wonderfully employed, underemployed, misemployed, and unemployed. And when I had few reserves and all the expenses that accompany a full family, the unemployment lasted for about a year. For those of you searching for work today and you have little cash and a lot of responsibilities, I want to tell you I deeply understand the multiple facets of the trials you're in, and I know it's challenging on many fronts. The Lord has granted me multiple men and women that were my direct supervisors that were very, very good. But once I had a male boss who was profane and a flat-out jerk, probably just like all of you somewhere along your path. I've been fired at the same time as another brother in Christ, and when I went and tried to find out why, it was one of those deals, you know, where you come to the office for a meeting, the lawyer comes up to you and he says, hey, is there anything personal on your computer? And I go, no, why? He says, because you're done. And I said, what's that all about? He said, go ask the COO. So I said, okay. So I go ask the CEO. I said, hey, what's up? And he said, we're going in a different direction. I said, what direction is that? He said, a different one. <laughs> Serious. And so there was no severance, no golden parachute. And uh, so I went through that. And I've also hired people and fired people myself. I've worked for 100% commission, hourly pay, and on salary. Clients have ranged from military, civilian government, commercial business, and residential people. And on the side, I even coached small college basketball for 11 years. On every one of these stops, I made mistakes of one kind or another, and on some days, I flat out failed. Like the time I thought I turned the water off to the homeowner's entire house, and I went up to the bathtub to replace the valve on the hot water. When I pulled that valve out, woof, out comes the water just soaking me. What a mess that was. The Lord's work for me also included raising two sons and two daughters, and with the joy of now being a grandfather to 14 grandchildren. And this is one of my granddaughters, Addison Morris. We call her Addie. Here she is learning some early survival skills. <laughs> How to find food when mom is potty training Piper and Nora stubbed her toe and is on the couch crying. Addie can't open a fridge and the cabinets are locked. But she even discovered the beauty of dipping as she would take the Purina dog chow, put it in the dog's water, and she discovered it was a softer chew. And so that would lead to uh, more eating. But alas, eventually mom shows up and she relieves the snack with uh, a grape popsicle. So it's a real joy there. You know, I, uh, I provide this summary uh, because as we look at the words of Jesus and his scriptures, no matter how challenging, how frustrating or discouraging your work is today, you'll know I probably can rate, relate to at some degree what you're all going through. Work matters. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' parable of the talents in chapter 25, reading in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, and the it referred to is the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. 
To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. He also, who had two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you didn't scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You thought that I reaped where I did not sow and gather where I didn't scatter seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to one who had the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who doesn't have... Not even what he has will be ta- even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My general outline for this week and next is a lead-in to the parable, and then interpretation of the parable, and then next week we will look at lessons from the parable. While we could elaborate on what a parable is, just to keep it simple for our terms, think of it as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So let's go to the lead-in to the parable. It is Wednesday, three days after Jesus has entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Jim covered that several weeks ago during Palm Sunday. And so once he goes in, you remember all the people are there and they're yelling, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In just two days, Jesus will be betrayed. The ones that he loves and that say that they love him, they will ignore him and run away in fear. And he will be crucified on the cross in just two days from this parable being given. He has already overturned the money changers in the temple where he declared that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. After debating the Pharisees and the Sadducees on a number of topics, he ended up really giving them a harsh and stern rebuke and to the scribes. And there are other people gathered around, so you can imagine their reaction. They are very embittered at what he told them. And after lamenting over Jerusalem... Back in chapter 23, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Then Jesus leaves the temple, and as he leaves, the disciples come up to him, and they say, hey, master, look at all these buildings here. Aren't they incredible? The architecture, the way they're adorned, what do you think of them? Well, Jesus tells them not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And that prophecy by Jesus was validated in secular history when in July and August of 70 AD, Titus, the commander of the 15th Roman Legion, destroyed the second temple and every single stone was thrown down. Approximately one million Jews perished. Here is one description provided by a reliable and vetted historian, Josephus. Quote, One would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot from its base. It was so full of fire on every side. And yet, the blood was larger in quantity than the fire. And those that were slain were more in number than those that slew them. For the ground was nowhere visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. End of quote. Many others died of starvation, and those that didn't were sold into slavery. And next is what is recorded in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so this is a picture of the Mount of Olives standing on that and looking into modern-day Jerusalem. This is called Jesus' Olivet Discourse because he spent, as is recorded, chapter 24, 25, and 26 telling these disciples a lot of things in answer to their two questions. Then Jesus talks about coming woes, the great tribulation, and many other things. And eventually he states this, quote, Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. End of quote. Then he begins a trilogy of three parables. The three follow each other. There is no break in Jesus' talk. All regard his return and primarily are intended for those who claim to follow him, not the outside world. In all three, there is an absent Lord, and in each case, the Lord returns. In these consecutive linked parables, each of them reveal a responsibility when the Lord is absent. The first one of the householder and his servants reveals the responsibility of those within his professing church and how they treat one another. The second one of the ten virgins reveals individual responsibility of not only expecting the Lord Jesus to return, but of a watchfulness that reflects real life, not mere form. Oil is in the lamp burning with anticipation. And the third parable is that of the talents. That is the lead-in to the parable. Now let's look at the interpretation of it. First, we have the master, and he's the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we have going on a journey. 
That represents him being absent, his withdrawal of his physical presence from earth. You will see this in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 1 when he ascended. That's when that was fulfilled. Next, you have the servants. And the servants are Jewish apostles, like I said. Next, you have the servants. They're Jewish apostles and disciples and those in the visible church throughout all ages, including all of us. Then what you have is the talents. And this is very important to pay attention to this. The talents in the Old Testament was actually a unit of measurement, a unit of measurement. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's actually become a coin or actual money. It is the largest denomination of money at that time. It is equal to 10 years' salary of an average person. So the five-talent guy has got like 50 years of salary to work with. And as they used to say in New Jersey, hey, that's a lot of dough. Broadly, this refers to various gifts and favorable circumstances God gives each one of us for our use. It includes natural and spiritual abilities, material resources, the health you might have, education, possessions, money, etc. And what's interesting about all these things, keep in mind that it is what we receive. It's a gift. They were given talents. All of these things is what we receive. Paul even said to the Corinthians, he said, you know, hey, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it? And of course, then you have what Peter said in his uh, chapter 4. He says, um, uh, I've lost my place here. Here we go. He said, um, uh, uh, above all things, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And it goes on and says, as each received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God's varied grace is given to all of us through spiritual gifts, and we're to use that. So everything is given with respect to the talents. Then there is the setting, settling of accounts. And after a long time, the master comes back and he settles accounts. And that happens to reference his return upon the earth, the general principle of rewards and judgments. And there, of course, him returning is the second coming of Christ. Then there is the outer darkness. In verse 30 is what you find that. And it says, in that place. Well, what place? Well, you can read about that place in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, but it is called the lake of fire, and we might touch on that some more next week. And while we glean lessons from the parables, two of the main teachings emphasized are these. First, the right attitude of a follower of Jesus as they anticipate and look for his second coming. And the second one is the duty of work, the duty of work. Jesus took care to balance his teaching. He would urge his followers to action, but then ensured that they first understood the importance of devotion. Remember, one of the main lessons of the parable of the ten virgins is that of watchfulness for the Lord's return. The virgins represent waiting for the Lord. And here in the parable of the talents, the servants working for the Lord. There, the inward life of the faithful represented 
hear the external activity. The virgin parable enforced the need of keeping our heart with all diligence. Here, it is about giving all diligence to our outward service while waiting for his return. It is not watch or work, but both at the same time. Watchfulness is not to degenerate into idleness like the Thessalonian error. Devotion and action, not one or the other. Recall how we tend to concentrate on our work more and work a little faster, a little harder when we're anticipating going away on vacation or a special event. So one day I'm uh, remodeling a house that's vacant, getting it ready to go on the market, and I'm about three quarters done, and I get a call from Diana, and she says, hey, my, uh, my folks just called and invited us to come down for 10 days in Florida, and the weather was perfect at that time. And I'm thinking, man, that's awesome. Well, I can tell you, I picked up the pace on finishing that last quarter, put in a few more hours. I got after it. I couldn't wait to go on vacation then. And you know, all of us can remember times when maybe a son or daughter was graduating from high school or maybe getting married, and what did we do that week before? We got a little more earnest and diligent in cleaning the house, organizing, decorating, preparing for the relatives from out of town and the friends and neighbors to come over. We couldn't wait for the celebration. We usually work more joyfully and intentionally to get things cleaned up, organized, and decorated when there's an event or something we're looking forward to. We had an old barn once. It's now beautifully finished. It's at Sunset Hills Vineyard. When we had that old barn, we would have square dances during the fall with various groups and the youth here. And so the week before, we'd go out there and clean up that dirty barn and trying to get it in the best shape that we could so we could enjoy the dancing and the food. Remember this, expectation increases motivation. Expectation increases motivation. And before we move on to any lessons of the parable next week, I want to pause and have us consider the duty of work, the duty of work. Jesus spent the majority of his life working. Initially, when he was a kid, he was working at school. He was learning from the Old Testament and memorizing it so that eventually when he turned 12 years old, he would go before the temple and he was educated enough to be able to dialogue with the religious, religious leaders. They were very impressed. Then, as a carpenter and stonemason, until his work transitioned to public ministry, he ended up working that hard labor for about 15 years. Consider this. God comes down from earth, and he spends years chiseling stone and hand-planing boards without modern-day equipment and tools. Many days he finished bone-weary and tired from doing hard things, he ate his meal, went to bed, and woke up just to do it all over again. And let this sink in. God in flesh spent more time working than he did preaching. When his public ministry took off, he often prayed at night so he was available to people during the day, exemplifying the necessity of both devotion and work. Another way we know God is pleased with work. You remember when Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist, and he's standing there, and a voice from heaven comes, which is God's voice, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he goes, what was he well pleased about? He was well pleased about his being a student and about his years of work. 
When we drain a word of its meaning, we damage its impact and the value of language. So what should be our understanding of work? For many years as a follower of Jesus while in the marketplace, I did not have the proper understanding of work, and maybe like many of you today. There were long stretches of dissatisfaction, various frustrations, and actual puzzlement. Is this all there is? People don't know the Savior, and I'm spending all my time doing this? Is this where I land and all I get to do after all my education and experiences? Once my stubborn mind began to think correctly and I embraced the root concept that Jesus modeled and that underlies this parable, it was really transformative for me. So my purposes for talking to you for the today and next week is to change how you think about your present vocation, whether it is working in business government or working as a mom raising children at home. I want you to have a renewed purpose, more energy, a refreshed joy in your work. <clears throat> I want you to change right in the mundane, challenging, or miserable job you might be in today. How we view our work and do work matters more than we can imagine. Too often, we honestly feel like we have a split life in which faith and work or faith and school just seldom connect. They just don't connect. We are wondering if our work is making any difference at all. We question whether what we really do matters. I mean, again, is this all there is? We've been reduced to working for money just to pay the bills. You know the jingle. I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. <laughs> yeah. We rise from bed to go to work, to make the money, to buy the bread, to go to sleep, to rise from bed, to go to work, to make the money, to buy the bread, to go to sleep. And we repeat the cycle, we feel like we're a mouse on a wheel. Some of you moms have degrees and come from a successful time in industry. And you had a very, very rewarding time there. And now you feel reduced to answering shallow, repetitive questions a hundred times a day, in between multiple cries, diaper bombs, accidents, mess, and shopping, resulting in daily exhaustion. And then they tell you, ah, oh, the Sabbath is coming. And you go, yeah, for who? Not for you. Some of you are underemployed, misemployed, or maybe again you're unemployed looking for a job for over a year. You might face weekly frustrating, aggravating, and difficult tasks. Perhaps it's distorting the purpose of your work. Maybe you've even become discouraged and lazy. Or maybe your words are reflected by Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where he said this, quote, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated my work in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether that guy is going to be wise or a fool. For all men's days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. End of quote. It is too easy for work to simply have us living for the weekend or speeding fast towards retirement, which we plan on having it dominated by selfish interests or visiting beautiful places. Or 
On the other hand, you love your work. You think it's amazing. You would never change your work history and where you've worked. But the temptation there is to become proud and self-reliant and maybe even eventually a workaholic. So how should we think in order to change our perspective when our circumstances aren't about to change? Most of us, and definitely me, grew up thinking like the ancient Greeks and Romans of Jesus' day. Namely, worship is sacred and labor is secular. When I grew up in school, you know how it was. You go home, as soon as you finish your homework, work, you get to go out and play. Subsequently after that, I realized that work was just a hurdle that I had to jump in order so I could do things that I enjoyed to do. And of course, you go to church to worship. The result of all that was that I viewed my life divided. That's how I saw my life. It was divided. Later, as a Christian, I thought for work to be meaningful, it must be spiritual. You know, I need to evangelize somebody, or I I need to go become a missionary, or I need to do church planting or pastoring or something like that. Those are all needful and important things, but I didn't think that my work was really a spiritual thing. Those of you that are millennials, you've been exposed to a lot of people who make job decisions based on how much money they can make or how much power they can hold over others or something that brings them quick prestige. Yet you see their lives often lack significance. Well, what I'm about to tell you is an important part of what eventually transformed me so that my peace and value no longer was tied to my task, my title, or my earnings. There are 12 different Hebrew words translated work, but each of them has a meaning that means more than just work. One Hebrew word blends work and worship together. And that particular word, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's avadah. And the verb form is avad. And you can read this definition here as you go along, but notice in the yellow, it means work and labor, but also the word exactly means worship, serve, minister, give energy and devotion to God, including ceremonies, and so forth. So here is a Hebrew word that marries work and worship. It marries the two. It's used 289 times in the Old Testament. And you remember from the beginning when God created everything and we were made in the image of him, he designed and commanded to exercise dominion over all of his creation. And in Genesis 2.5, it says this, there was no man to work the ground, to evad the ground. There was no man to do it. Once he created Adam, he placed him in the garden, and he said, work, work it, and keep it. And the Hebrew word there, you guessed right, it's evad, work it. But then you go to Exodus, and God said in renewing his covenant with Moses, six days you shall work, and on the seventh you rest. Again, the word for work is the same Hebrew word here. But in other verses, it means worship, service through worship. Famous verse in Joshua chapter 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, is what your versions typically read. Well, that word serve is the same Hebrew word. But you cannot serve the Lord without worshiping the Lord. And so the two are tied together. This Hebrew word reveals the nature 
of the Hebrew mind. It is holistic. It is integrative. It is comprehensive. There is no secular or sacred dichotomy. The, used is, the word is used for working in our vocation is the same word used for worshiping the Lord. In fact, God put us on earth so we work and worship at the exact same time. Historian Thomas Carlyle put it simply, quote, Work is worship. All true work is sacred. End of quote. Let me tell you a story that happened. So it's many years ago, and I'm, some people have gone away, and I'm redoing their kitchen while they're gone for about 10 days out of town. There had been a lot of snow it's after, just after Christmas, and I have a guy working with me. So I finally get to the place and remodeling the kitchen where we're going to install the cabinets. So I send this brother uh, down to the Home Depot in Reston, and he goes and picks up the cabinets. It's nighttime. It's quite late. About 8.30 when he re- arrives back, we offload him, put him in the garage. And so I start to cut open the, the cardboard to take the cabinets out to move them inside. And I notice at various points on certain boxes, there's cardboard's indented. And then I look more carefully and get some light up, and sure enough, some of the cabinets are damaged. And I go, oh, gee. I go, well, I, I, I go oh man. And I'm thinking, what do I do with this inside? And this friend of mine, he, he looks at me. He comes up sheepishly and he goes, uh, something happened. Uh, what would that be? Uh, some of these fell off the back of the truck on Reston Parkway while I was uh, coming to bring them back. So I didn't get angry, okay? I was at a place in my Christian life that I didn't get angry. And I said, okay. So we took them off. I looked at them, and uh, I knew I couldn't repair them. I didn't have the skills. But my father-in-law is an expert woodworker, and he knew how to do amazing things. So I called him and said, Dad, would you consider coming over, looking at these, seeing what you can do? So he repaired them the best he could. We installed them. The uh, family comes home. I point out to them the damage on the cabinets. I offer to replace the cabinets, come back and reinstall new ones. And the mercy of God showed up through these people. They didn't know him. But they said, no, it's okay. They're not in spots where they really stand out. Uh, We're good. So how is that worshiping at work? Because when something happens that you'd like to have unhappen, instead of getting angry and chewing this guy out, I just was at a place where the Lord said, okay, you'll just have to redo it. And then instead of me thinking I could figure out a way to do it, I knew that my father-in-law was much better than me, and I called him in. And then instead of trying to hide the things, get my check and bolt, hoping that the kitchen's dark, I point out the problems and offer to replace them. And in God's mercy, came in. Jesus' physical labor was part of his daily worship before his father and then during his public ministry. And that this forms the foundation behind the duty of work in this particular parable. It leads to an integrated mind and life, the integration of worship and work. It's not worship, excuse me, worship is not limited to a religious meeting in a building or for a public evangelistic effort. It takes place in the midst of our everyday lives, in our homes, in our offices, in our factories. In redemption, Jesus redeems the worker and the attitude towards his work. How we work not only matters now, but it impacts eternity. Work is a key part of God's agenda for his kingdom in the hearts of people. Every job is sacred, depending on how we do it and with what motive. 
It can be as spiritual to be working, raising children or in the marketplace as it can be to be at a Bible study. Worship is to be a continuous act. Work and worship is intended to be seamless. God placed us here to glorify him and to govern in his stead. One brother states it this way, quote, Work at its core is an act of governance. Governance over wood, metal, cows, cotton, and carrots. Governance over sound waves, electrical currents, and wind. Governance over computer keyboards, fiber optics, and digital images. Governance over children and people. Governance over things. Governance over ideas. End of quote. Beautifully said. Jesus fully understood this Hebrew word and unified the reality of worship and work in who he was and what he said. While we'll never know the extent that the particular disciples that were with him on the Mount of Olives when he's giving this trilogy of parables and then he gives the parable of talents, we're not going to really know what were they thinking about. They had a Hebrew learning. But with all that Jesus had just said, were they really thinking about what I'm talking about in this depth? Probably not at all, because Jesus had more to say. But we have this advantage to look back. So when we look back, we can take out a Hebrew lexicon, and we can begin to see exactly what God meant work to be, the integration of work and worship. And so this, this particular word provides a critical foundation for the teachings from the parable of the talents, and namely the duty of work. Next week, we're going to look at lessons from the parable. We'll do that next week. Um, but I want to say something to you before we close. There may be some of you who are online, and others of you who might be here might have come in, and you really don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could have read this parable with me, and here's what you'd likely be thinking. Gee, you got to work your way to heaven, or you're going to be in outer darkness. And, and whenever we divorce this parable from other New Testament teaching or other words of Jesus, or the history of the Old Testament, if we divorce it from that, we are going to error. And one of the primary errors is you're going to think this parable is talking about working your way to heaven, and it is not. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a free gift. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Elsewhere it says, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's, uh, it's, I've forgotten the verse here, I'm so old. It's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, any person should boast. If you have a lot of questions relating to God or the Bible and Jesus, and you're not ready to put your faith in Him, if you go to our website on the resources tab, you'll go down, you'll see something called starting point. Just click there and it will explain everything to you. But perhaps somebody is watching or somebody here that would like to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today. Just acknowledge in your heart that you are a sinner who has violated God's law and that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, shedding his blood, and rose again the third day. And if you place your faith in him, 
He promises to give you eternal life. So really, what does worship at work look like? Our God is creative, so we should be creative. Our God worked, and so we work. We have activity. Our God is a God of beauty, so we should make things beautiful wherever we are, showing off His excellence and giving glory to God along the journey. We improve processes and outcomes. We contribute and cultivate our world, making it a better and more peaceful place and the people around us better. We tend to things. We make things. We fix things, all while offering peace and wisdom and spreading the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that souls might be saved. You know, there are some that think unspoiled, pristine nature is just amazing. Well, I'm telling you, it's not necessarily a good thing. When I purchased a farm, the trees were so overgrown, the fences mangled with poison ivy and unpruned mulberry everywhere. It was completely ugly and chaotic. It took labor and lots of it from a number of friends and my family to make it more beautiful. So God worked, so we work. He creates, so we create. This is what worship at work looks like. So let's say together our closing scripture for today and tomorrow. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Avada. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus Christ, how kind and good you are to have died for us and to have given us revelation about why we were born again to work and how we can have an integrated life even when it's difficult. I thank you, my Father, for all these dear men and women who labor so hard in the marketplace, in raising children, in praying, and the various places you've taken them. And while many of them face hardships and irritations on an ongoing basis there. I pray that you will refresh them and renew them as we look at lessons next week and as they consider this intentional purpose that you have for them of having work be a place they worship you. Bless them this week for Christ's sake. Amen.